Today's reading has been taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the, of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are dis left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Good morning, everyone. My name's Carl. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. It's been a big week in Australia, hasn't it? If you're into politics, it's been a huge week. A new Prime Minister, a real shake-up. My guess is that many of us are still scratching our heads trying to work out why. And perhaps a few of us are beginning to wonder, now, now what? What does this change mean? A change in leadership can be an uncertain time, can't it? And that's especially the case when the change in leadership is because of the death of a king. I wonder if you noticed that little detail in our passage today as it was read. In case you missed it before, let me read it to you again. It's from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, which can be found on page 1069 of our Black Bibles. I'd love it if you could open up your Bibles to that page and read along with me, it would be good to keep uh, that page open as we look at this chapter together. 
Well, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 6 says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Did you pick up the little historical marker that Isaiah leaves for us there? The year that King Uzziah died. Well, history puts us in the year 740 BC. And I think Isaiah puts this detail in to add credibility and timing to what he's saying. But I think Isaiah also has more than just credibility in his mind when he mentions the death of King Uzziah. See, it seems to me that Isaiah is setting up an implied contrast between King Uzziah, the dead king, and the Lord Almighty, the one who is seated on the throne. And to really appreciate that contrast, we need a little bit of a reminder about what King Uzziah was like. So I'd love you to have a look at that with me. Come with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. It's on page 707 of your Bibles. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And I'd like to read to you from verse 3. It says this, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. He, that is Uzziah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. You see, Uzziah reigned 52 years 52 years, and after the week we've just had, let's kind of translate that into our setting here. In the last 52 years, we've had the following prime ministers. ScoMo. It's funny having a prime minister with a nickname, isn't it? ScoMo, Malcolm Turnbull, Tony Abbott, Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, John Howard, Paul Keating, Bob Hawke, Malcolm Fraser, Gough Whitlam, William McMahon, John Gorton, John McEwen, Harold Holt, Robert Menzies. Fifteen of them, all in the last 52 years. You know, so often are our Prime Ministers changing at the moment that even though I just started writing this sermon on Wednesday, by Friday I had to change this bit. And the changing frequency of changing of our leaders, I think, puts the reign of Uzziah into perspective, doesn't it? It was long, it was stable, and the Bible tells us it was good. The passage tells us that Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. If you still got your Bibles open to 2 Chronicles, skim over some of the achievements that are listed against Uzziah's name there in verses 9 through to 15. Uzziah rebuilds towns. His frame spreads as far as Egypt. He builds structures, forms a well-trained army. He even invents military devices. He reigned a long time. And yet towards the end of his life, his achievements are overshadowed by a pride that gets in the way. You know, his life, it kind of reflects the problems of Israel. They had it all, and yet they squandered it. Well, as Australians this week, we know something about the feelings that are accompanied with a change in leadership. We might be wondering about what lies ahead in terms of a future direction for Australia. 
But, you know, in one sense, here in Australia, it really doesn't make that much difference, a change in Prime Minister. Are you likely to lose your job tomorrow because of a change in Prime Minister? No, it's pretty unlikely. Are you likely to lose your house? No. Will New Zealand's military attack us next week? Well, it's super unlikely, isn't it? But when the king dies in the 8th century BC, I think all of these questions would have been asked. Well, they wouldn't have been asking about New Zealand, of course. They're more likely to be concerned with Assyria or Babylon. But you get the idea. And into this uncertain time at the death of a king, Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord Almighty seated on the throne. And it's as if the text is shouting at us here, Here is your king, the Lord Almighty. He is the one seated on the throne. It's a breathtaking vision, isn't it? Seeing God, seeing him as king, sitting on a throne with a magnificent robe. He's enormous, he's splendid, he's commanding. The book only uses four verses to describe the scene, but the more I read over these words, the more amazing and the more splendid they seem. You might be wondering what they're all about. And I think at our heart, they show us that God is high and exalted as the king. The glory, the holiness, the enormity, the majesty of the Lord make his kingship more real, more pronounced, more certain. You see, for too long, Israel had put their hope and trust in human leaders. But here, here is the Lord Almighty and he reigns as king. And as we read this passage today, it seems to be a wonderful reminder that our God is not flaky. Our God is not impotent. He's not susceptible to leadership challenges and failed climate change policies. He is the Lord Almighty, the King. He's powerful. He's glorious. He's effective. He's holy. And what's more, he is a king who has the answers to the problems of his nation. It's what Alec Moiter calls the triumph of grace. That is the answer. Undeserved forgiveness. From a God who on his own initiates atonement and reconciliation. We're going to come back and look at that atonement and reconciliation a little later on. But for now, I just want to dig into this vision a little more. I wonder if you notice how God's robes are described. It says the train of his robe fills the temple. In case you're wondering, this is a kind of status thing, the size of your train. For a king, having a long train, it's the equivalent of an Armani suit for a lawyer, or it's the equivalent of skin-tight jeans for an East Coast church planter. It's a status symbol. For royalty, the status symbol is the length of your train. We're not really familiar with this, and the only picture I have in my mind at the moment of a, of a train is that of associated with a wedding dress like Kate or Megan's with its long white train, but that's not really what's on view here. What's on view is much more like the photo I've got on the screen behind me. This is the robe that Queen Elizabeth wore to her coronation. It's a royal robe. And look at the train, how luxurious it is, how magnificent and how long. 
But Elizabeth's train, it's nothing in comparison to the train that God wears. We get an image of his robe as one that floods down the aisle of the temple, folding back on itself again and again like a Venetian ice cream as it fills the temple. And if the robe itself fills the temple, then that means that God himself must be overflowing from the temple. See, if the temple's full of his train, then the rest of the king must flow out of the temple. You know, it's just like King Solomon said when he prayed to God. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven can't contain you. How much less this temple have built? See, as a king, he's high and exalted. He's glorious. Here's the encouragement to Judah and to us today. This king, our king, is a king like no other. He's powerful beyond comprehension. He's mighty and splendid and glorious. Uzziah might have built an army of more than 300,000 men trained for war, but here is the real power, the Lord Almighty. That makes him a king in which we can find real security. Passages like this one should cause us to lift our eyes up. It should help us to see the true size of God. Do you think you need that corrective today? Because so often I think that our society, our world, and perhaps even us, minimise God. We think of him as just like us, constrained and imperfect. We try and shrink him down. Yeah, we like to think of him as being able to do some things, and so we pray to God for things associated with the church, like church growth. We might even pray for healing, but we largely don't expect God to act because we've minimised him. Look here at what Isaiah sees. The train of his robe fills the temple. Now this picture, this vision, it's in stark contrast to the caricature of God that I think so much of our world has, that of our, our friend in a time of need, or as an almost imaginary help that we can speak to when things get tough. This vision, it's it's no meek and mild Jesus, just a good teacher and nothing more. No, here is the King, the Lord, almighty, high and exalted. And yet if God were just high and exalted, just glorious and splendid, without being accessible, what use would he be to us as our saviour? The story of the Bible is that this king also cares for his people. And so we can join with the psalmist who says in Psalm 91, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. A little later on in the psalm it says, He will cover you with his feathers. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. He's an awesome God, isn't he? But he's also a God of refuge. A king who offers security and protection like no other. Is that how you know the king? The one who's high and exalted? 
I hope so, because that's the picture that we see today. Well, so far we've seen the might and awe and size of God in these opening verses. But there's another thing on view here. And it is, I think, the defining feature of God. That is his holiness. In the vision that Isaiah sees, it goes on to say this. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. The seraphim seem like strange creatures, don't they? They're strange, but they have a magnificent job. That is to proclaim the holiness of God. And they do so with voices that are loud enough to shake the doorposts and the thresholds of the temple. You might be wondering, what is holiness? Well, I think it's a distinct and defining characteristic of God. Holiness is a term which includes both aspects of morality and transcendence. That means, in part, holiness is associated to the way we behave. But it's more than that. Here it seems to be mostly associated with God's size and power and majesty, his transcendence. And the word's repeated three times. That's for emphasis. Let me read to you what uh, R.C. Sproul says at this point. Only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy, or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. That the whole earth is full of his glory. The scene's intense, isn't it? In fact, language kind of breaks down with us at this point. Probably the best word used to describe what Isaiah is seeing is awesome, but that word awesome is kind of diluted in our world today. I'm just as likely to describe the pulled pork that Miff is making for lunch as awesome. Now, sure, it's fabulous pulled pork, but it's not really awesome. This vision is awesome. It involves seraphim's praise of God that makes the very building shake. Smoke fills the space. God himself is unable to be contained by the temple. And then above him, the fiery servants hover as his servants. It's more like an extravagant rock concert than a sedate church service. That's a reflection of the glory of God. The vision paints God like nothing else in this world. And I wonder this morning how that makes you feel, this vision of God. Perhaps it fills you with confidence. Perhaps it's an encouragement. Maybe God might be able to help after all. Maybe he can heal my sick friend. Maybe he will change that brother or sister that I've been praying for. Maybe he can really fix my work situation. Does this vision give you confidence? 
I hope and expect that for some of us it will. But for others of us, perhaps this vision fills you with fear. Or if not fear, maybe a sense of foreboding. And that seems to be the case for Isaiah. Have a look with me at how Isaiah responds to the vision that he sees in verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I don't know about you, but woe is not a word I use too much today. But it's a word that the prophets loved. It speaks of doom and destruction. You see, for Isaiah, seeing God's holiness, seeing the glory of God, highlights his own weakness, his lack of holiness, his profanity, you might say. And having gazed on the holiness of God, Isaiah knows that his sinfulness is going to be his undoing. Now, I assume that Isaiah was very much like one of us. And by that I mean that he probably was not much better or not much worse than us, and therefore probably had a whole host of sins that might have been illuminated in the presence of God. And yet he says, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips. There's a strange thing for him to say, to reflect on the cleanliness of his mouth. Why does he choose that bit of him? Perhaps it's because he has a premonition that the outcome of this little vision that he sees of God will be his role as God's mouthpiece. And as a man of unclean lips, he's ill-equipped for that task. Or perhaps, like we saw in uh, James when we were studying that book, that he's using this idea of what we say to be an indicator of the state of our hearts. Or perhaps he's simply just picking what he considers to be a relatively minor sin and holding that up in the light of God's holiness. And even with a relatively minor sin illuminated by God's holiness, he sees that he's ruined. Doesn't really matter, does it? Because really what's important here is the way in which Isaiah responds to the glory and holiness of God. That's with humility and repentance. He's convicted, in light of his vision, by his own sin and by the sin of the nation which he comes from. I wonder if getting a bigger view of God, a view of his holiness, is also important for us today in terms of illuminating our own predicament. See, if we minimise God, if our image of him is one of meekness, or alternatively, if we just see God as a crotchety and grumpy old man, Does that then shape the way we view ourselves? We think of God as being small. Are we more more likely to overlook minor transgressions, thinking perhaps that God will never know? Isaiah was a man of unclean lips. Aren't we all unclean in that way? And yet in the presence of God, he knew he was ruined. And yet... God is gracious. See, what happens in verses 6 to 7 is a gracious act of forgiveness, brokered by God, enacted at his command, and it restores Isaiah. And I think it points towards the possibility that Judah, Israel, might also be restored to God. Let me read to you from verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
For a person who's just seen their ruin, their helplessness before a holy God, what could be more precious, more desired than a pronouncement of forgiveness? See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Guilt taken away, sin atoned for. Isaiah doesn't really seem to be too concerned with the mechanism here. Here's what matters for Isaiah. He's cleansed through an act of grace. And if God can cleanse the lips of an unclean man, surely he can also cleanse the lips of an unclean people. You see, when you've seen what God has seen, it's not a matter of God being powerful enough to bring this about. Rather, it's just a matter of the people's willingness. As people who live in the time of the New Testament, we have the great benefit today of being able to read about how God brings forth forgiveness. Still by grace. Grace delivered through the redemption that Jesus brings. Let me read to you a golden passage from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. It says this, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The message of Romans, and indeed the Bible as a whole, is that we all, like Isaiah, are unable to stand before a holy God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet, God is a God of grace. A God who acts to bring about our atonement by presenting Christ as a sacrifice through the shedding of his blood, bringing justice and forgiveness. Today, we understand this mechanism. Today, we know how God does it through Jesus, demonstrating his righteous actions, paying the price. It's a glorious message. It's what we call the gospel or the good news. And it's a message we want everyone to hear. That's why we started this church. That's why we're running an event in a couple of weeks called Nailed It. Because we want everyone to know about the glory and the holiness of God and the promise of forgiveness and atonement with him. Isaiah was also tasked with the mission of telling the nation about God. And he's commissioned to do just that. He is to be God's messenger, God's mouthpiece to the people of Judah. When we read this passage, it seems like it's going to be a pretty pointless job, a waste of time. I wonder if you ever had a job that was a waste of time. Or do you know anyone who's working away in a pointless job? In May this year, David Graeber wrote an article in the Australian magazine suggesting that many of us, I think he guessed around 30%, work in jobs that have no meaningful contribution to the world or to society. It was a sort of tongue-in-cheek article, but he really had a point to make also. David went on and he identified five different types of work that make no meaningful contribution to the world, and he labelled those workers as flunkies, goons, duct tapers, box tickers and taskmasters. Let me give you an example of what he means. Duct tapers, he says are those that exist solely to fix a problem that shouldn't be there in the first place. Here's a classic example of a duct taper. The person whose job it was to monitor an email account for an IT help desk. When an email arrived, that person was simply to transcribe the email into another form 
and then send it off to the IT crew. That doesn't really need to be there. That's a duct taper. A goon, on the other hand, pushes information to those who, nearly, who never really wanted it in the first place. Think of telemarketers trying to sell you something you don't want. Do you think Isaiah fits into this category? Was he a goon trying to push information to a people who never really wanted it? See, Isaiah was a prophet and his job was to tell the people what God wanted them to know. Yet we read in verse 9, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the hearts of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So it certainly seems like Isaiah's task as a prophet is meaningless. Yet Isaiah went out and he taught clearly and with logic and with clarity. And when the people didn't listen, he tried again. He reiterated his message. And yet although he spoke clearly and winsomely, his word would be rejected. I like this quote from Moita's book on Isaiah. Opportunity in human life is as often judgment as it is salvation. Opportunity in human life is as often judgment as it is salvation. Does this then spell the final end to Israel, to Judah? Well, the answer is not yet and not quite. See, in verse 13, we read of a stump, in chapter 13, in verse 13, sorry, we read of a stump remaining. And just as the recognition of sin in Isaiah didn't lead to his ruin, rather to forgiveness, such is the character and nature of Isaiah's king that although the tree which symbolises Israel is cut down, a stump remains. You might like to flick forward this week to chapter 11 to see the stump sprout a shoot, a shoot that brings much promise and hope. Today, we've seen through Isaiah's eyes the majesty, the size, the holiness and the glory of God. In a time of changing leadership, God declares clearly that he is king. That's as important for us today as it was for Isaiah. Because it's so easy in our world today to minimise God. So much commands our attention. We get so many different messages about what's important and where we should focus our attention. And for Isaiah, in the midst of political upheaval, he sees a vision of the king who reigns supreme who reigns in holiness, into whose presence we're not able to come without some form of mediation, without cleansing and forgiveness and atonement. The vision of the holiness of God helps us to understand the rest of the book of Isaiah. You see, as we read on in this book, we're going to see judgment being unleashed on an unrepentant nation. And as terrible as that message of judgment is, it becomes more understandable when we hold it up to the radiance and holiness of God. And yet, I don't want you to forget that in Isaiah, God is also presented as a God of hope and assurance. See, Isaiah, who identifies with the sin of his nation, is forgiven in an act of pure grace. He doesn't deserve it. He doesn't earn it. It's God who instructs the seraphim, God who makes it happen, God who pronounces forgiveness and atonement. 
And in doing so, he holds out hope for Judah, a people of uncleanness. That's the same God we worship today. A God who doesn't want anyone to perish. That's why Peter is able to say, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We need to recognise how holy God is, and that he's ransomed us as sinners. We're only then in a position to take the good news of Jesus to others. Let me pray that we do. Almighty God, you are holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of your glory. We come to you today thanking you for the work of your Son, Jesus, who has enabled us, a people of unclean lips, to call you our Father, to seek refuge under your wing, confident that you call us your own. Father, we ask that in a world that is competing for your attention, in a world that is competing for our attention, we would continue to fix our eyes on you, that you would continue to remind us of your majesty. Help us to live for you, confident, secure, and equipped to do your will. Amen.